welcome to Base Camp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. I was thinking the other day about the journey of the soul, the descended path as it is often referred to. My guest today speaks and writes beautifully about this road. The descended path runs counter to everything about our Western culture. Collectively, we tend to push forward with technological progress and quest for more, more speed, more improvement, fast results, fast information, fast internet speed, and blah, blah, blah. Everything has to happen five minutes ago. The soul doesn't care about any of this, not one damn bit. The soul wants to marinate, to meander, to get lost and to slowly figure things out. All the people I know who have a largeness of soul carry this expression with them. It is such an attractive quality in people, those that speak from the soul. It's interesting to me that all the New Age talk and books are about ascension. You hear it all over the place, the ascending spirit. And it's easy to see why. The dynamic of ascension has an escaping quality to it, doesn't it? As in, I'm tired of all this suffering and I want help to lift us and myself out of this place. I think probably both dynamics are important. At least that is my hunch. The spirit and lightness of ascension and the earthy authenticity and truthfulness of the soul. I also think again and again of the grail myth. The grail speaks wonderfully of the descended path of the soul. Remember, Parseval, the hero of the story, was unable to heal the Fisher King's wound and restore the kingdom until he did his inner work in this descending path. He needed to become humble, which is a derivative of hummus, which means earthy, feminine, unsophisticated. In short, Parseval needed more soul. Or I should say, he needed to do the work to contact and express the largesse of his own inner experience. How many of us are at this point in the Grail story? We took whatever tools we had and arrived at a place to heal the ailing king, but none of us knew what to do. The story shows us that Parseval, ourselves, had more inner work to do, the descending path of the soul. This is where we start to meander, to notice the depths in ourselves and those around us. Nature starts to have an incredible beauty and interconnectedness. The descended path starts to awaken our inner mystic, the part of us that needs to feel a bit lost and confused in order to properly arrive at our destiny. If we are to grow into elderhood and properly mentor the good men that are younger than us, as well as awaken the archetypal king, then this path of the soul will need to be walked and brought into clear focus for future generations. Remember, there are mystics and teachers that will arrive at our shores who have not yet been born. It is important for men to do this inner work as my guest today speaks about so eloquently. Let's go talk to him about the path of the soul, meandering, and the importance of mentorship and elderhood. Paul Dunyon is a co-founder of the Connecticut Men's Gathering, a biannual retreat for men that began in 1992. He's been in private practice as a psychotherapist for 37 years and is the author of six books, including his latest, Wisdom, Apprenticing to the Unknown and Befriending Fate. His blogs can be accessed at the Huffington Post as well as Medium.com. Here is my interview with Paul Dunyon. Okay, I am here with Paul Dunyon. Author, teacher, mystic Paul Dunyon. Paul, welcome back to Base Camp for Men. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a bit since we've spoke. You've been on the show twice. We did some really, really, both times you did great episodes and we talked about your book and you've got a new book out called Wisdom Apprenticing to the Unknown and Befriending Fate. 
another excellent, excellent book. Um, and I was reading it in the last couple of weeks. And just to start off with, um, there was something that in the first part of the book, you mentioned that uh, a mentor of yours, George, um, yep. he said something that I thought was really uh, uh, relevant and was really interesting. He said, you'll need to learn to let go of trying to get life right and let it, <laughs> and, and, and let it, and let it get you right instead. Yeah. Not, the God's willing, you may stumble more in the direction of enlightenment. And, and then you go on to say, you know, the key is to honor meandering and not the arrival, which is a really, really beautiful way of saying it. Um, and it runs completely counter to what you and I were raised on, which is this kind of linear Western achievement oriented, you know, set goals and go be all that you can be. Uh, meandering sounds the exact opposite of that. Um, and I guess my first question is, is, is it still important to set goals? Do you, do you, even if you're committed to taking this more soulful road, this meandering road in life, do, do you set aside goals and not worry about it? Or do you still set goals, but you know that you have to have a balance of the meandering? How does one strike the balance? And I'd imagine for the long, younger listeners, the idea of meandering just sounds terrible, right? For, 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 you, for you and me, for me, I'm 55. So a bit more meandering sounds lovely to me. But when I was 30, meandering sounded awful because how was I going to make my way in the world, make my mark, make my money? You know, it was like if you were to say, hey, we're advocating more meandering, I'd have said, you're nuts, dude. I can meander later on. Right now I got to get to it, you know? So what's, right. the, what's the balance? And does it change as you age? Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, no, when I, throw, I don't want to throw the goals out. In fact, uh, synonymous with goals for me is desire or, lo or longing. And so it's an important reminder that comes from Joseph Campbell, which is the hero's journey begins typically by two things happening. One, he has a desire. Mm -hmm. If that's not online, Campbell suggested defeat or screwing up is another great way to, <laughs> to launch the hero's journey. Yeah, because that usually awakens a man. Yeah. He'll start asking, what the hell happened here? How, yeah. yeah. How did I screw up? <laughs> so those, the, according to Campbell, those are the two significant launching pads. Mm. However, what will happen to the hero is that as he's going, taking a right turn, heading to save the princess or find the treasure, Mm -hmm. he will get distracted and he will meander. Yeah. Yeah, it's inevitable. Right. And Campbell makes the point, the wandering about is not something that's aimless. I mean, he still has the goal in mind, but what he doesn't know is that the real purpose of the journey was a deep interior shift, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which the meandering is going to afford. And he can keep his eyes on the treasure. That's okay. But that's not the big deal. Got it. Yeah, you know, what's funny as you were saying that I, I was realizing that when I meander, that's how I really get my bearings, right? That's right. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's how I check in with what's going on, how I'm feeling, what, what yep. I'm picking up on. If, I, if I'm so goal-oriented or I'm really on task, I miss, yep. all, I miss a lot that's going on right in front of me, right? I, right. Just, I just get narrow, narrow tunnel vision. Right. And I don't, I'm not, yep. yeah. 
And it is typically what happens to every hero and heroine and all these myths. They, they start wandering and find themselves fighting a dragon going, well, how did I get here? Right. And what's this all about? And now there's a wizard that wants to talk to me. I mean, so all these things are starting to happen yeah. that are really helping craft a, a deepened soul. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, why 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 is defeat so important? Why is defeat such an important teacher? It's funny because when you know running men's groups and you know we kind of bring defeat in or failure, you know what whatever what's been your deepest failures that you've had or defeats that you've had and have them speak honestly about that in a group because we're so taught to craft a persona that's like if you have humiliating defeat or if you you tried to start a business or your marriage failed it's like, don't talk about that. Only talk about what's upbeat and what your victories are and project right. this kind of persona, this egoic persona out. Right. In shadow work, it's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do it that. Like, take a look at the stuff, the, 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 the muddy stuff and what did we learn? And in your eyes, like, what, why is defeat such a great teacher? I think it is an incredibly significant opening. Mm. It's the way in, typically in defeat, a man's heart will likely have been broken. Yes. And in, yep. a broken, in a broken heart, he's getting ready to live with more heart. Mm. So lots of things can happen. And the other thing that happened to me in defeat was I learned to ask for help. It was like, wait a minute, yeah. I'm trying to do this alone? <laughs> yeah. How's, how's that working? Yeah, yeah. I don't, without defeat, I don't know if a man will ever learn how to ask for help. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I know I didn't until I was like in the mud of my shadow and oh, that's that's not working out too well for me. Right. Uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to project the confident facade, but it was just it just came off as BS. Right. I right. didn't even I didn't even believe it myself after a while. You know, it's just like, why am I even expressing this? This is, right. this is inauthentic. Right. Yeah, it's uh, difficult to give up a persona that's driven by bravado. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. What, you know, you say, um, you define fate in the book uh, as the will of the gods. And I wanted to ask you if fate and predestiny, are they related? Are they the same way of saying the same thing? Um, and how can you tell if someone's arguing with fate? How does, how does a man befriend fate as he lives his life? Well, I think befriend, befriending fate is a lot about taking, for example, the serenity prayer very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. When I'm befriending fate, I'm surrendering my will to what's out of my control. I'm accepting the courage to exercise my will over what is in my control. And I'm hoping for the damn wisdom to know the difference. Right, right. Uh, that, in my mind, is the act of befriending fate. Mm. I give it its due and I take control of what it allows. Does, does, is predestiny the same sort of, a different way of saying the same thing or is there something well, else? Say, 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 what, say what you mean by predestined. Well, like, like here, for instance, okay, when I took this podcast, like my friend, my good friend, Mark, he doesn't use fate, but he says it was predestined. So I got asked to do this podcast and host it by a big media company. And I'd never even listened to uh, a podcast when they asked me, I had no experience in podcasting. And he said it was predestiny that you would 
host and be the voice of Basecamp for Men. You, okay. you, have, you have a passion for men's work. You're good at it. You wrote a book. It was predestiny that you would do that. And so, and I recognize what he said is there were larger forces at work that put me behind the microphone that I didn't understand. I had no desire. It wasn't like I was driving to be a voice in the podcast world at all. I had yeah. no idea what the hell they even were. And right. so he was pointing like, look, it was, it was the hand of God. It was the hand, it was predestiny that you would be doing this. And I was like, yeah, I, I see that. But I guess I wanted to ask you, is that kind of getting in over to fate? Was it, was it the touch of the gods, so to speak? Or, or is it something different than that? See, if, the way I arrange it is that it's a combination. Meaning I'm, in my best wisdom, I'm creating my destiny by every time, whether I fight with fate or surrender to what's out of my control, I take courage over what is in my control or I run from it. Every one of those choices in my mind is creating uh, some level of destiny. Yeah. But the other aspect of destiny is more like with what your friend's saying. Mm -hmm. And I think it's lined up with what the early Greeks would have held too with destiny. Mm -hmm. Meaning there's something coming from beyond my will and my understanding that's creating a situation for me to step into. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you, you didn't have to do the podcast. No, no. It's just that the groundwork was set up not only by choices you made earlier, but by choices made from, from destiny. Right, right. Well, and I was doing a lot of speaking about being out on your edge and taking risks. And so when that came, it's like, well, am I going to be a man that walks the talk and say yes to this? Or am I going to be like, oh, I don't do that, you know? So right. it was it was a, a small test by, you know, from the universe in a sense. Right. Um, how when you, when you have clients or, or, or people that you work with, uh, what does like, how do you know when people are arguing with fade? Are they, are they, are they fighting? Like, can you see that they're fighting, you know, the reality kind of like the data or the what's so of what's going on, you know, are they, are they not coming to peace with this is going on? You know, uh, like what, what would be an example or how do you know if somebody is sort of arguing or, or not coming to terms with fate? Yeah. I think there are several indicators that someone's mm -hmm. not coming to terms with fate. Yeah. One is most of us survive childhood through the employment of magic. Mm. Yeah. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, this is an example. Let's say um, I've, I've been I'm, I'm seven years old being physically abused by my parents. Mm -hmm. The healthy child will attribute the disturbance, the pain, the abuse to he's not, he's not lovable enough. Yep. He's attributing magic to if I become more lovable, this is going to stop. Mm -hmm. But that's yep. a magical move. Yeah, it is. There's no, there's no reality to it. Right. But it's going to help that person survive an intolerable situation. Mm -hmm. The dilemma is that same seven-year-old boy likely is going to become 37, 47, and 57, still living with some sense of magic. Yep. And then becoming deeply disillusioned. How come life's not delivering when so much of his belief system is woven with magic? So that's one way. Mm -hmm. The other way that indicates someone's not making peace with fate is they're reporting how much they feel like a victim. Yep. And then when I hear the narratives, 
the, the truth is they just listed 14 things they had absolutely no control over. Right. It wasn't that life was victimizing them. It was that there was a heck of a lot simply out of their control. They start noticing all the things that they don't feel are justified or, yeah, or, right. fa- or fair. They start noticing everything unfair that they see out there and that and personalizing yeah. it. Yeah. 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 They do that. Yep. The, the third indicator would be there's no acceptance. The man, the man will start describing what happens, something totally out of his control, and he's not accepting it. Yep. As if it should have been different. Right, right, right. So, so those three indicators usually show me someone's rest, wrestling with faith. There's not, they're not making peace with it. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know, you wrote every apprentice must learn to confirm what truly matters with good knowing. What is your what is your definition of good knowing? What is that exactly? Before we talk about good knowing, we should talk about good unknowing. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good unknowing. Good unknowing is critical. And I define it as a clear and open relationship with ambiguity mm-hmm. or, un- or uncertainty. It's also a welcome to two things, curiosity and ignorance. If a man's practicing an open relationship to ambiguity, and uh, which is uncertainty, yep. and welcoming curiosity and ignorance, in my mind, he's standing in what I call good unknowing. Mm. That sets the stage. If he's doing that pretty well, that's hard work. It is. It's very hard work. But if he's committed to it and being an apprentice, I'm not talking about an expert, then what can be yielded there then is good knowing. Good knowing for me, it comes from two places. One place is the ancient Hebrew word for the infinitive to know, which is yada. And in the Torah or the Old Testament, it says that Jacob came to know Sarah. And she's like in her 60s and they want a child. He comes to know her and she has a child. And to know there, that infinitive to know meant he knows her centrally, sexually, intuitively, romantically, mm-hmm. friendly, intellectually. Yeah. Intuitive. He knows her always. Huh? Yep. So it's this large sense of knowing. And then the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard said that truth is subjectivity, not subjective. Mm. No, not subjective. Truth is subjectivity. Yep. And I have that mean the same thing as yada, meaning the person is employing every internal and external resource they can to try to come to grips with some semblance of knowing. Got it. Yeah, it, it's not, it doesn't, the not knowing portal does not come easy for men, right? Because we're so taught to, you know, it's about what we know to have a sharp intellect to, to you know, it, it, it's super challenging to be in that beginner's mind or that ambiguity of not knowing, uh, especially on the central questions, which beg this kind of mystery and this kind of uh, surrender to like, I'm really not sure uh, uh, where I'm at here. I'm meandering and I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like something, a muscle or a capacity that you need to build over time. It doesn't come 
when you're young necessarily, you know, you might be an old soul and have inclinations in that direction, but uh, you, you have to work through some of this. I see this in the younger men right now that because of, I think we're, we're such a technologically directed society and they all have jobs where it's really important for them to be smart intellectually. And so they're, they're really leading with that. And so the meandering piece for these, these millennial men that are in their thirties, let's say um, they've got work to do because it's, it's not something that's being handed to them. We're not living in particularly meandering times. Uh, And so it's interesting that that's, that's something that you write about. I think it's, it's in the sweet spot of something that men can access through your books and through, you know, the different work that they can find that's, that's in this vein. Um, I love what you said about, you had a question in your book. You said, what is aging asking of me? And I think this is a great question. Doesn't matter. It come that question for a man in his seventies or his fifties is an excellent question, but it could also be applied to a younger man, right? As he's progressing, what is, what is aging asking of me as a 30 year old? Um, because your roles are going to change. And you you mentioned that as we age, we're asked to adjust or let go of what has been the driving force. And sometimes the driving force isn't just something from your younger years. It could be something that you've held on to your whole life. Is the driving force, what is it? Is it your ambition? Is it the dream you had when you were younger that you sort of pursued throughout your, your you know, your prime years, quote unquote? Uh, what is the driving force and and you know what is being asked as you age in your relationship to this driving force? Yeah, I think the driving force initially is a combination of a man's desire and his gifts. And that's a great combination, mm-hmm. meaning that man runs some likelihood that he can make a significant offering mm-hmm. to the community in some way. Yep. You know, this is the story. His driving force, of course, was his cunning and his adventurous spirit. But that had to be shifted, changed to wisdom, ultimately. Mm. And I think that's what's hard for most men. It's like the, the, the driving force that they got so much mileage out of, they just want that thing to you know, bring them on home right to the end. Totally. And it's not meant to. It's it's meant to run out of steam. Yeah. And then something else needs to become a driving force. I can see that in my own experience where, you know, I've seen myself let go of a lot of things that were part of the driving force, you know, um, but when I sit with this question, I have built my whole life around uh, this kind of conversation around what's going on with men, this shadow work and these men's groups and this these conversations that I have around what's happening in the male tribe. And I'm certain when it's all over and done with, this thing that has been driving me will be what a lot of people talk about at my funeral, right? <laughs> because it's, it's what I've done. It's my legacy. But when I read those words of yours, I realized that to your point, it may not be what brings me all the way home, that maybe the men's work and the and the books and all the stuff may be a particular many chapters of my hero's journey, but there might be a part as I'm aging and I'm asking this question of what is the community need for me, where it may shift and I might not do 
these kind of episodes about men, or I might not write targeted towards men's inner work. And, uh, and I, it's hard for me to imagine it. It has been such a driver for so many years and so many decades that it's, but I know I, when I read that, I was like, you know, that, that applies to you. You may need to shift into something different as you age, because, uh, this thing might run out of steam. And, uh, and I'm not sad about that. It was just kind of like, I, it's almost like there's a small part of me that can't even picture me not in these conversations about what's going on in the male tribe, but to your your point, that may be where I'm headed, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to envision mostly because we, most people like you and me, we do it with so much passion and commitment. Yeah. But I had a great lesson happen to me several years ago. I was teaching in Portugal and uh, it was a week-long training, and the person running it wanted me to do some teaching on Monday evening, so I did that. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, a man 25 years younger than myself was teaching most of the day. Mm-hmm. Luckily, one of my colleagues was an old friend, so we took a walk at the end of Wednesday. And I said to him, what am I, the warm-up man? <laughs> he, he said to me, what'd you say? I said, am I the warm-up band? And we had one of the most significant conversations that I've had in a long time. And where he looked at me and he said, no, you're the elder. Mm. You're holding the space for the younger man and blessing what he does. Yes. But I tell you, I had to to loosen my grip on my ego to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's... You know, we were so taught, you know, I think you and I both did sports when we were younger. I think uh, I competed a lot with men, you know, before I got into these conversations. So I was always in competition. And as I got older, the younger men were a threat to my territory, right? And so I, whether territory was attracting a a, a mate or jobs or money or whatever I was going to do in what field you know, the, the, the guys that were 20 years younger, these were not going to necessarily be friends of mine. They were, they were interlopers. I, I needed to, to, you know, be stronger, wiser, better. And it took a while. I think it took men's work to realize, look, you've got to shift that you have an ego and you competing with the younger men is not helping the male tribe. You need to bring them along. You need to right size your own ego, uh, and gracefully move into an area and bless them for what they're offering. Cause there was younger men that were stepping into the male conversation. And I noticed there was this kind of subtle protecting my terrain. And it's like, that's not the way to do it. Like you got to You have to check your ego uh, bless them. And some way do, hopefully will do work that's way more impactful than the work I do. I, that would be awesome. But I couldn't always say that honestly before I'd be like, well, no, I want to be the one doing the significant work. You know what I'm saying? Right. So right. I think right. I, I've, I've turned a corner. I, I still can notice a little touch of it, you know, or a little bit of jealous of, wow, that guy can really work out, man. I can't work out that hard. I'm j- I wish I could, but yeah. you know, part of it is just knowing, no, you're, you're growing into your your elder role. And that's fine. You know, I want to be healthy and strong, but I can't do it the way the guys that are 25 do it. Like, come on, man. Right. Right. I think the more I'm willing to release my attachment to my ego around that stuff, I am noticing my support and blessing for the younger men 
I have a greater response of delight that comes online. Absolutely. And the more the more I step into the the delight, I don't experience a loss. Right. Right. Exactly. How how, how the heck could you experience loss when you're in delight? Yeah. That won't happen. Exactly. Exactly. So that, that's very helpful to me. Well, and and you said you know when you hit your 60th birthday, you started to realize that some of the important lessons were taking a lifetime. In other words, learning the important things like compassion and freedom, love, simplicity, grace, gratitude, generosity. And, it, you know, that a man would be a, a novice at these, even at 60, still learning them. And right. I, find, I find this notion to be frustrating <laughs> because I recognize myself that I want to master these important things, but also it's a relief that, I'm not behind. I, I'm not dumb in the soul class, right? I'm, I, my soul is learning these things. I, if I'm still not quite as good at love or generosity or acceptance as I can be, I'm not supposed to be. I'm supposed. To, it's supposed to take me all life to really put these together and learn them in a good way, and then perhaps even teach it a little bit. Uh, and I just recognized in your in your words there that um, I can feel frustrated that maybe I'm not further along, which sounds almost absurd, especially inside of this conversation you and I are having right now about meandering, but that I felt relief that you also found that it takes a lifetime, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, at 73, I feel much more comfortable with releasing my attachment to arriving. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't expect to arrive on all the significant elements of life. That's not going to happen. In fact, I call it the, the sacred descended path. Mm. It's the path of apprenticeship and not being an expert. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. You know, you said you, said you had an experience uh, in the book uh, where you were having you were having a ceremony, a plant medicine ceremony, and and you uh, you came away with a mantra of breathe gently into the light. And I thought I wrote it down and stuck it up on my wall because I love that as a mantra, particularly as an elder. Um, is there any advice you would give a man who is of a certain age, growing into elderhood, or starts to feel like, hey, I'm not I'm not one of the young bucks. Uh, I'm moving into some other role. Um, how, how do you, what, what would you counsel a man who's like, what, what do I need to know here? What, what, how do I prepare myself to serve the community? Even if a man is, you know, 60, 70, 80, and maybe his community has gotten small, maybe he's not, you mm -hmm. know, I, I see that with a lot of older guys that are retired, uh, where, you know, they used to have a big community when they were working. They'd go to the office and they were well-known and they went out and had business lunches or, or whatever, networking stuff. And so they were known in the community. Then they stopped working and now, and they're elders. The community maybe got kind of small, mm -hmm. um, but that, that doesn't mean it's, it's not significant or soulful or important, but what would your coaching be or your counsel be of a man who's like, what do I need to do to prepare for this role? The, uh, Paul's words are resonating with me about be, be really stepping into being an elder and bringing forth um, whatever gifts I can in the community. What would you say to them? I, I think it's critical to, uh, to walk with some other men that are your peers. Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I mean I, I've got a new book coming out in the spring entitled my days with Emma, a soulful path to elderhood. Mm. Now, that 
book came out of conversations on my deck with my best friend having coffee through the pandemic. Mm. And what I've noticed is that as the the size of the community might diminish somewhat, I think it's a great opportunity for more deepening. That is, I notice now that four or five close friends I have, the deepening is the focus. Yep. There's much less att- attention given to what is superficial and, and irrelevant. And I think that's critical. To travel with some other men who have the same curiosities. That's beautiful. I mean, what what foundational practice would you recommend for somebody that's reading your book or hearing this? What What's something to put into practice that, that you would recommend that maybe not everyone's doing, you know, what, what, what is, you've obviously built a path, a soulful path. That's got a lot of uh, substance, a lot of authenticity and integrated shadow and stuff. What would be, what would be something that, that somebody could do to start to move into this kind of meandering and inner knowing that you're speaking of or inner not knowing, I guess I should say. <laughs> well, for me, I mean, there's a couple of things that are critical. One, as I just said, I, I want to be accompanied. I mean, I am currently being mentored by two people in their 80s. Mm. Nice. And so, yeah, and so I, I really believe in mentorship. And there are two focuses that have become incredibly important to me of late, right? One is this. who in Who in me is awaiting a welcome from me? Meaning I see the self as a incredibly impenetrable mystery. Mm. And I don't want to stop welcoming who lives in there and lives in that mystery. Right, right. So that question to me is critical. Who in me is awaiting a welcome from me? Mm. I love that. And then the second correct question comes from a friend of mine who had a serious diagnosis a couple of years ago. We would sit by the fire and he would say to me, I'm asking this question. What courage is life asking of me? Mm. Mm-hmm. So those two focuses, uh, I have a lot of faith in these days. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, well, thanks so much, Paul, for coming on and checking in with us. It's always a delight to talk to you. Um, and do you have any creative projects? You've got the, the new book is out. Uh, I'll give them the website on that. Is there any other uh, creative projects or things? You've got another book coming out next year? In the spring, yeah. Oh, my God. You're prolific. And what is that going to be, number... seven or eight seven or eight man i love it i love it uh is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about today well just you know i'm i champion the connecticut gathering of men it's one of the oldest gatherings in the country Mm -hmm. Uh, Seven thousand men have come through that gathering that's great and now there are men in their 30s and 40s that are just devoted to make it happening whom i have a lot of respect for and so that's a great event that happens every September and April. They do it twice a year? Twice a year. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love it. Paul, thank you so much. Thanks for all of your wisdom and insights, your writing. Uh, you know, I, I've read a whole bunch of your books. I don't know if I've read all of them, but I've read most of them. And I can honestly say I get a ton out of it. Um, I feel like I've got um, a mentor on my path just by reading your book. So thank you so much. I highly recommend it. Uh, and thanks for coming on again and sharing with us today on Basecamp for Men. Uh, you're welcome, Tony. Take care. Okay. 
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. To find out more about Paul and his work and writing, go to www.pauldunyon.com. All of his books are excellent sources of wisdom and will certainly assist you in finding alternate perspectives, ones with a bit more soul. Paul is a living example of how a man ages skillfully, mentoring and coaching younger men, and still getting feedback from his mentors who are in their 80s. That really struck me. Our learning never stops, not if we stay curious and connected to one another. And lastly, if you find our show valuable, please consider a small monthly sponsorship. Each dollar donated is greatly appreciated as we continue to bring you the best content we can for the next chapters of your hero's journey. Thank you, my listeners. for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac and you're listening to Basecamp for Men.